Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 17. Do you have in your home a fancier set of formal dining plates and silverware and such? Do you guys have that today? Uh, I remember when, when Amber and I got engaged, the ladies in our church in Tennessee told us that one of the things we had to do for our wedding shower was to go to this fancy little shop in town and register for some fine dishes. They said everyone needs to have a formal set of dishes for special occasions, okay, especially if you're a pastor. And we didn't really think that was something we needed considering we were going to live when we got married for free above an elderly gentleman's garage in an old studio apartment. But they kept pestering us and so eventually we went to that little fancy store and we walked around looking at all these fancy plates and bowls and I kept looking at the price as I couldn't imagine actually eating anything on something that expensive. Uh, granted, I had spent the previous year as a bachelor eating Hot Pockets on paper towels. So it was a little different. We settled finally on some plates and, and bowls that were the most normal, reasonable-looking stuff we could find. And the ladies were a little disappointed in our choice, but people bought them. Uh, we got like six plates three bowls, and some other serving dishes. I still don't know what they are for. Uh, they sat in our cabinets for a few years. Eventually, we did use them. We even still have some to this day. So if you come over, I may pull them out for you, but probably not. They're too expensive. Uh, they got to stay right there. Um, anyways, that idea of having a separate special set of dining ware I think that's a helpful picture for a word that the Bible uses a lot and we've been singing about today. It's the word holiness. Holiness means separate or set apart for special use. It speaks of being other and different. But, but holiness has kind of gotten a bad rap in today's world. If someone calls you a holy person, that's usually not intended as a compliment. Uh, we say someone is holier than thou when they act like they're better than everyone. Even for Christians, we sometimes confuse holiness with some sort of legalistic rule keeping. At one time in recent history, a holy person was someone who didn't drink, didn't play cards, and didn't dance. So we might think today that to be holy is just about listening to, not listening to secular music and avoiding non-Christian movies. Even if we have a positive view of holiness, I'm not sure many of us would claim that title for ourselves. Like, we don't go around saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a really holy person. We think, like, that's for pastors and missionaries and monks. We may think we're even too messed up to ever be considered holy. But here's the thing. The Bible talks a lot about holiness. Holy is the dominant word used to describe God in the Bible. It's said that the angels worshiping God proclaim even now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That threefold repetition tells us that God is totally and completely holy. And here's the kicker. The Bible also says that God expects his people to be holy. Listen to this verse from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It says, it's talking to Christians, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a little bit of a jarring verse. 
No one will see the Lord without holiness? How can I be holy? How can anyone be holy? What do I have to do to become holy? Well, those questions are at the heart of what we're going to cover today in the book of Leviticus. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the book of Leviticus. We're really doing it. I can't believe it. We're flying over this book. We're taking big chunks of this often skipped over part of the Bible. And my goal, as I said from the start, is is to show you why this book is in the Bible and how it actually has a lot to say to us today. The book of Leviticus is a series of instructions given to Moses from God at the base of Mount Sinai. God spoke out of the tabernacle, which was the tent that the people created for God to dwell with them. That was the goal of the tabernacle and really the goal of all of human history. God wants to dwell with his people so they can glorify him and enjoy him forever. In light of that, one thing we've seen is that there's a clear movement to this book. We started by talking about sacrifice and why sacrifices were necessary to live with God. If the people were going to have a relationship with him, sacrifices were needed to deal with their sin. Then we talked about being clean or unclean and why the way that people approached God was important. They had to do it carefully. Then we went into the heart of this book with chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. We said that chapter and that ritual are central to this whole book. It was the one day that the high priest could go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And through the actions of the priest on that day, the people's sins were dealt with. They were paid for and they were sent away into the wilderness. Now we're on the other side of the Day of Atonement. Sins of the people have been atoned for. They've made sacrifices, become clean to approach God in worship. And now we're going to see how the people were called to live on the other side of this relationship with God. And we're going to deal with this theme, which is really the major theme of the whole book. It's the theme of holiness. Well, let's start with this question. Why is holiness so important to God? Why such a big deal about holiness in the Bible? Well, flip with, <clears throat> flip with me a few chapters into our section today to Leviticus 19. Uh, God tells the Israelite people right here in these verses why he is calling them to be holy, why, in fact, they have to be holy. Uh, this right here is the key. It sets the stage for everything else we're going to see. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's as simple as that right there. There's no more explanation needed. God told Israel, You shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. Your God is holy. God's holiness meant that to be his people, they had to be holy too. And to understand that, we need to go back to Israel's purpose in the story of the Bible. Remember, Israel was a people chosen and redeemed by God out of all the people groups on the earth. God chose to make a covenant with them. We said that was kind of like a marriage. He agreed to be their God and protect them and love them. And he did all this so that they, as a group of people, could carry out a special task. They were to represent God's kingdom on the earth. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, mediating God's presence to all the other nations. 
They were to show people what it looked like to properly love God and people. They were to be his representatives, so that meant they were to be like him. We understand that idea. Just think for a minute about your workplace. I know it's Sunday, you don't think about work. But in a sense, when you clock into your job, you represent your employer. All right, when you put on your uniform or lanyard or name tag or you log in for your online meetings or whatever, you are expected to live out the values of your company or employer and to represent them well. And if you don't, what happens? That's it, right? That's how God expected Israel to be, except it was exponentially more important. Because God's holiness wasn't just some value or mission statement that he had. God's holiness is essential to his character. For God to embrace unholiness is to be untrue to his very self, and that's impossible. So God is holy. Therefore, his people must be holy. And he did not leave Israel to figure out what that looks like, but he gave them a book called Leviticus. And he told them three things concerning the call to be holy. He gave them the means of holiness, the testimony of holiness, and the goal of holiness. That's what I want to show you this morning as we fly over these chapters. First, I want us to see, number one, the means of holiness. Look with me now at Leviticus 17, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is kind of an odd command. God says that if you kill an animal... And you don't bring it to the tabernacle for sacrifice to God. You get cut off, which could mean at best being kicked out of the community or at worst being put to death. All for killing a goat? I mean, what's, what's the deal with this? Well, the following verses tell us God's not just talking about killing an animal. He's, he's talking about sacrifice. Look at verses 5 to 7. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Guys, so much of the confusion we have in the Old Testament and books like Leviticus, it comes from our lack of understanding about the cultural context in which it was written. We've got to remember that Israel was surrounded at this point by pagan cultures who worshipped all sorts of gods in strange ways. We know historically some of those gods were represented with idols of goats. That's why he talks about that strange phrase, sacrificing to goat demons. I was reading through this last night. I told my wife, I think we had a hard rock band in our high school named Goat Demons. But uh, anywho, that's what he's talking about. God's 
Thank you. I'm, I'm glad somebody appreciated that finally. Uh, <laughs> God's concern here was that Israel not follow along with the culture around them and make sacrifices out in the wilderness to other gods. That's how everybody else did it. If they wanted to worship, they could just go out and they could make a sacrifice to whoever, whenever, however. But God's telling them, no, the only way I want you to do it when you sacrifice is to come to me in my place, to do it at the tabernacle with the priest. In the second half of chapter 17, we read some more strange laws against eating blood. I didn't think that's something you'd have to tell people not to do. But again, this was common to ancient cultures, especially in pagan worship. And God did not want his people to be like them. But we also learn here something about why blood was so important. Uh, Blood is one of those strange things we talk about as Christians like it's totally normal. Have you ever thought about that? Like we grew up at church, we sing songs like, are you washed in the blood, washed in the blood? And then those who aren't Christians or who are new to church are looking around like, what have I gotten myself into? Is this some kind of vampire cult where they're going to wash me in blood after church? Here's the significance of blood. Look at Leviticus 17, 10 through 11. He says, if, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut off him off from among his people. Here's why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There's the whole thing with blood. I know it's gross, but this is really important. God says the life of the animal is in the blood. So when the blood is given from a sacrifice, the life of the sacrifice is being given in the place of the life of the one making the sacrifice. This explains why eating blood is forbidden in the Bible. It's not just gross and unsanitary, but it's morally wrong because it's, it's misusing a life of an animal. This is actually also a call then to treat God's created animals with respect, to use them properly as God intended. So let's put this chapter together now. God is telling the Israelites that when they make a sacrifice, they got to do it in his way, at the tabernacle through the priest. Because the life is in the blood, when you sacrifice, you're offering another life in place of your own. This tells us that the means to holiness or the way to be holy is through sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, but through God's ordained sacrifice. For a sinful person to have a relationship with a holy God, something's got to pay for the sins of the person as a substitute. And that substitute must be given to God alone. I hope you see now the clear connection to Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, no one will see the Lord without holiness. And so Jesus came to make sinners like you and me holy. Jesus is the means to holiness. Therefore, he's the means to a relationship with God. He was the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place as a substitute for our sins. And now we see why the blood of Jesus is such a big deal, why we love those songs and why they're worth singing about. Because the perfect blood of Jesus being spilled was him giving his life for you. Listen to how Peter makes this connection between holiness and the sacrifice of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 19. He says, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's the connection. He says, be holy. That's what God told you. Be holy. Why? Because you've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. We cannot become holy by doing good things or having good morals or being good people. We are sinners. We're unable to make ourselves clean and pure and holy before God. So Jesus came and he lived the holy life that we never could. He was pure and spotless like a lamb. And yet he's the one who died. He died to take our sins upon himself so that he could give us his holiness so that we could be holy before God and see the Lord. Okay, so through Jesus, I'm made holy. I trust in him. I'm holy. I'm good. Then that means I can just kind of do whatever I want, right? Because, hey, I'm holy, right? (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) Sorry, we still see the call here for Christians to live holy lives. We just saw it in 1 Peter. He says, as he who's called you is holy, you gotta be holy in all your conduct. Okay, so what's the deal here? How can I be holy and yet still need to try and live holy? Well, this tells us there are two different aspects to holiness. We call it positional holiness and practical holiness. Positional holiness is my position before God as a forgiven sinner made holy through Jesus. Right now, I am sanctified, set apart, washed by the blood of Jesus. And now, I'm called to grow into my position through practical holiness. That's what we call sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus and becoming more holy. So we've been adopted into the family. Now we must live like a member of the family. We've been put on the team. Now we need to play the game. And we're not trying to earn our holiness. We've already been given that positionally. But rather, we just need to live out practically who we already are. We need to represent our Holy Father in a way that glorifies and honors Him. And that takes some work. That's what we see secondly. The second aspect of holiness, practical holiness, in our second point says this. Number two, we see the testimony. The testimony of holiness. In chapters 18 through 22 we see more long lists of specific laws. Many of them are similar or identical to laws we already looked at in our series in Exodus. They are applications of the Ten Commandments to Israel's life. And these laws are grounded in God's call for Israel to be holy. Because obedience to these laws is what's gonna set them apart from the nations around them. Remember, that's what the word holy means. It means set apart, distinct, God wants his people to look different, to live out a testimony of holiness so people see how different their God is. We see this in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. 
And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. God says, don't do the stuff you saw in Egypt where you came from. And don't do the stuff you're going to see in Canaan where you're going. you got to be different. And then chapter 18 goes on to address holiness in particular situations regarding sexuality. ESV, if that's the translation you're following me with this morning, it uses the expression uncover nakedness, which is indeed an expression, so I say, let the reader understand, okay? (laughs) And because of its topic, this chapter has become controversial in modern times, especially concerning the verses on God's prohibition of homosexuality. The sexual revolution has so dominated American culture today that many have just outright dismissed these verses. And the argument for doing so goes like this. Well, just like the verses on blood and sacrifices and wearing different types of clothing, the verses that prohibit homosexuality were given for that specific cultural context. God was speaking against the pagan practices of the Canaanites, so those, those don't apply to our world today. That's what they say. But let me share with you just briefly why that argument doesn't hold up and why God's prohibition against homosexuality and all other forms of sexual sin are still applicable for us today, even in a changing world. Let me give you four quick reasons. First, homosexuality is not the only kind of sexuality condemned here. God is not picking on any particular group of people. I would encourage you to go back later and read through this. Uh, Most of these verses will make you blush. Uh, They are some of the most explicit things written out here and condemned, like he covered all of it. So to pluck out the part that talks about homosexuality and say, oh, well, that one was just an issue of the times, you're taking it out of the context of all other sorts of things we still consider wrong regardless of time and culture, things that are in there like incest and child sacrifice. Second, the prohibition against homosexuality is repeated again in chapter 20, and this time with the punishment of death. And it's not just homosexuality, but we also see adultery, other forms of sexual immorality with the same punishment. That level of consequence tells us of the seriousness seriousness of these sins. Third, these commands against sexual immorality are rooted in God's creation design. They're not bound by time and space, but we learned two books earlier in Genesis that God created sex to be solely for the context of marriage between One man and one woman. Homosexuality, like all other forms of sexual immorality, distort that creation design. And fourth, the commands prohibiting homosexuality as well as the commands against adultery and lust are reaffirmed in the New Testament, showing us they're still applicable to Christians today. Romans 1 shows us that this wasn't just an Israelite and Canaanite thing that God was speaking to, but sexual immorality, including homosexuality, has always been and always will be contrary to God's design and therefore sinful. Now, most of us grew up in a church tradition where that was made clear. So we hear this and we nod and we agree and and we lament the way our culture has embraced and now celebrates sexual sin. But there's more to the testimony of holiness than just being sexually pure. 
Because right sandwiched between Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 is Leviticus 19, which is where we get the famous command to love your neighbor as yourself. Look at uh, chapter 19. Let's just hit a few of these commands. Verse 9 and 10. They command Israel to leave food in the field for the poor and the sojourner. Verse 11 and 12, condemn stealing and lying to your neighbor. Verse 13 and 14, command Israel to pay people the wages they're owed and to care for those who are blind or deaf. Verse 15 and 16, call on Israel to do justice and to not show partiality to other people. And then in verse 17 and 18, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In our tribe of Christians today, we are often quick to talk about the importance of sexual purity, which is very important, especially today. But for some reason, we're slower to talk about caring for the poor and seeking justice for the weak. When in reality, both are essential to our testimony of holiness, just as they were for Israel. We can't so emphasize sexual purity that we forget to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can't so emphasize loving our neighbors that we ignore the call to sexual purity. We need to hold both of these up because both of these things testify to the holiness of God and the difference of his people. Both sexual purity and love of neighbor are countercultural. They both run against the flow of today's world. They both demonstrate the otherness of God and the distinctness of those who follow him. That's the point of the call for us to be holy. It's to be different, to be separate from the world around us, to push back against what may be normal and what everyone else is doing and live in a way that honors God no matter the cost. So though we're made holy by Jesus, we are still called to live out that holiness to the world. That's the testimony of holiness. And here's the third and last thing we learn about holiness in today's chapters. Number three, we see the goal of holiness. Leviticus 23, we have a rundown of the various days and feasts that Israel was to observe in their annual calendar. This is like Israel's book of reports, okay? There was, of course, the weekly Sabbath and the Passover and the Day of Atonement, which we've talked about before. Then there were other celebrations like the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Booths, right? The Israelites, they loved to have big parties and celebrations. Leviticus 25, we learned about the Sabbath year, which was an entire year where the land itself was to rest from being planted and harvested. Then every seven Sabbath years, which was 49 years, Israel was to celebrate the year of Jubilee in the 50th year. The year of Jubilee, that was a really big time. All those who who were in slavery were free. Land and property was given back to its original owners. It was a big, big deal. And there's so much here. I would encourage you again, go back and look through these chapters later. But these chapters taught Israel that even their time was to be holy. That's why they were called holy days. Even their calendar was to reflect distinctness from the cultures around them so that every week on the sabbath and every few months with a feast and every so many years with a sabbath year they were constantly having their lives reordered to the true goal of holiness 
What is that goal? It's fellowship with God. That was what this holy time was for Israel. It was a day or a week or a year set apart for worship and celebrating and fellowshipping with God. Can you see how this all flows and builds on itself? It's through the holy sacrifices that then leads to a holy lifestyle. And through a holy lifestyle, it then leads to holy time. And it all builds to being with God and fellowship with him. And this is the goal of our holiness as well. We aren't just called to be moral people for moral sake. We aren't just called to be good so everyone can see how good we are. We're called to be holy so that we can be an unbroken fellowship with God. So as Hebrews 12 tells us, to see God, we must be holy. And our holiness comes through the means of a perfect sacrifice of Jesus, which then leads to actively living out our holiness as a testimony of God's distinctness and greatness, which then culminates in greater fellowship with God and greater glory for him. So here's the question this morning. Are you holy? Maybe you answer this question, you say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not holy, I'm a sinner. I want you to know, I, I'm a sinner too. A lot of days, I'm the farthest thing from being holy, even though I know how to fake it real good. But I've become holy, not by becoming a better version of myself or doing a lot of good deeds in society. No, I've become holy because I've been made holy. Like I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it, but it was given to me as a gift from Jesus and I accepted that gift. I said, Jesus, I need to be changed. I need to be made holy so that I can see the Lord and have a relationship with him. So I trusted in Jesus and he changed me forever. And I want you to know he can do the same for you. He can make you holy too, no matter how unholy you may be or feel. If you will just come to him in faith, he will do the rest. So, are you holy? Maybe you answer that question the other way, like me. You say, yes, I'm holy. I trusted in Jesus, and it's not me. It's Christ in me. He has made me holy. But maybe if you're honest, you'd say, I'm not living out my holiness. I'm not living out my identity as God's child practically. There's a particular sin in my life that I've fallen into. Lust, anger, bitterness, jealousy, envy, lying, whatever it may be. There's something that's keeping me from having fellowship with God because I haven't dealt with it. If that's you, I want you to know today that there's hope. First John 1.9 says this. It says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is one of the ways to become holy because it says, hey, I'm not good enough, but God is, and I receive his forgiveness. Friend, if you will confess your sin, he will forgive you and cleanse you. If you will just take it to him, you can grow in your holiness. You can find a new and sweeter depth of relationship you never thought you'd ever have with God if you'll just take it to him. So whatever God's calling you to do today, 
Let's just close this morning by spending a few minutes with him. Would you bow your heads with me?